1: That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
0: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome once again, everyone, to the Baseball America podcast. I am John Manuel, joined today by Jim Callis live via the magic of the interwebs and uh, Gchat. So, Jim, welcome into the podcast, and uh, hope everybody enjoys this podcast. Obviously, a big project for us this week, Draft poor Cards. And I say this week, really the last couple of weeks, Jim, I, I would say that Draft poor Cards consumed my life.
0: Yeah, they did for me too. You know, I, I actually took uh, the weekend off and came down to beautiful Durham, North Carolina. You the did? Of the draft report card issue, only because I got started on the project early and it was still tough catching up. But uh, I think it's amazing how much information we cram into six- or seven-point type or whatever it is that we run in the magazine. And, you know, we probably could write at least 50% more on most teams' draft report cards uh, if given the space. We, we we cram an awful lot of information into a, uh, I guess it's five pages of team-by-team uh, team breakdowns and, and another page for an overview. But uh, it's, a, it's a labor of love. And uh, I, I do think they're they're great. You know, it kind of kicks off our, our off-season prospect coverage. It gets us going for the the team top tens and top thirties that we do in the issue in the prospect handbook. And it you know, brings up guys you need to know from that standpoint. And I think it's also good to kind of, you know, we, we cover obviously the draft so much before the draft, you know, reacting, you know, who gets picked where, then the signing deadline. And it's kind of like a last, you know, detailed look back at the draft. Well, you know, how these guys really do in their first pro summer.
1: Right. I, I also like Jim that for, for you and for me, you know, it's really hard to follow all 30 organizations But it really seems like this really does lay the groundwork for us to help edit and shape a lot of the organization top thirties. You really feel like and I'd also like that you and I alternate National League and American League, because I really feel like it gives me a base to talk intelligently to every writer about their organization top thirties. I feel like I can do that anyway, but having talked to the scouting directors of all thirty organizations basically the last two years, in depth, you know, at least a 30-minute conversation, if not longer. I really feel that like that gives me a base, and I can always go back to those guys if I have questions. Um, when we're editing top 30s, I, I, that's one of the things I like best about doing draft report cards. It really, it just has, it's fun to write draft report cards, but it has multiple benefits going forward, both from compiling our College All-America team, editing top 30s, coming off of league top 20s. It's just great to get that, to sit down, have this conversation, and and get that feedback with guys in the industry. For me, it's an invaluable Exercise.
0: All right, it's one of my favorite things to do. I mean, this will probably bring a a chuckle out of you, but I mean, you know, for years, I, I tried to do all thirty of them, and I didn't (laughs) want to give up doing all thirty of them, and it just became too time consuming. Because I think if you you go from start to finish, you know, from doing a little prep before you, you you talk to a scouting director, to talk to the scouting director, to to writing these up. I mean, it's probably a good. I don't know, probably close to two hours per team by the time you're done. No obviously Two hours time per team times 30 teams is 60 hours. Uh, uh, It's a very long time there. But, no, I I enjoy it, too, and for exactly the reasons you said, I enjoy talking to the scouting directors. They enjoy talking about this stuff, and I just think it really gives you a a base of knowledge because, I mean, for – you know, typical team I mean you may not talk over each guy in depth but I mean you're, you're discussing at least 15 20 players out of each team's draft and you know, even the guys you don't sign I always think that's one of the more interesting things is you know it's not always you know in many cases it's not the top unsigned pick who's the best player they didn't sign but you know getting a sense like you know especially a team like you know say the Red Sox who, who take a bunch of chances. On guys who are tough to sign you, who do they think the best guy is? Or, you know, learning about guys. And then, you know, three years down the road, they're, they're a good draft pick. And before that, they're, they're a good college player. So uh, it, it's one of my favorite projects. I just wish it wasn't so time-consuming. But maybe I guess it's why we get so much out of it is because we put so much time into it. It
1: really is. I don't. I really don't know how you did all 30 <laughs> in those years. It's uh, kind of startling. Let's get into discussing some of them. I think the thing that most people, our readers, really... Yeah, let's face it, people like lists. We rank a lot of things, Jim. Uh, we ranked the top five best drafts in this draft class. So let's talk a little bit about those drafts. And uh, I think we had a pretty decent consensus between the two of us. Uh, you know, I think every year the teams that have the best drafts, frequently those teams in the top five are going to be the teams that have extra picks. Now, I don't recall if we ranked the Phillies draft last year in the top five. I remember I liked their draft better than you did last year. And a year out, I still like that draft for Philadelphia. Uh, But, uh, you know, best draft this year was the Rockies, which had a couple of extra picks, but I wouldn't necessarily classify it as a bonanza of picks. It's not like they had five of the first 50 or something like that. They did have three early. Uh, But what set the Rockies uh, draft uh, apart for you, uh, after talking to Bill Schmidt especially?
0: Well, I think what set it apart was you and I even identified this uh, minutes after it happened on on draft day back in June. Uh, you know, they did have they did have you know two extra picks. They had an extra first rounder and a sandwich pick. But but I think what jumped out for me with them is they got just tremendous tremendous values with each of those top three picks. They got guys who had no business being there for their pick based on how talented the players were. I mean, with their first pick at number eleven. They got Tyler Matzik, and we discussed. You know, before the draft, he was unclear where he was going to go. He was making noise about wanting unprecedented money. He had finished real strong. High school lefty from California. A lot of teams, not a lot of teams, but but some teams had him ranked as the second best player in the entire draft after Strasburg. Yeah, he definitely um, finished.
1: He finished really, really strong. Too. I mean, he
0: was a legit. You know, top of the first round. You know, top half of the first round guy who then was great. You know, throwing ninety-seven, ninety-eight with a great breaking ball down the stretch. So, so you know, I know with the, what I loved about that pick, and we discussed this at the time too, with the Rockies is, is I you know, and we, we can or cannot get into a discussion about why the draft works. It doesn't work, but the teams, as much as complaining as people do about how the draft doesn't work the way it's supposed to work, I, I'm getting to the point where I blame the teams almost as much as anybody. Agreed. I'm not saying you should take guys and not sign them to make a point, but a lot of these guys are going to sign – a lot of these guys want to sign, and they may throw out a big number or say, don't draft me, don't draft me, I'm not signing for that. And in the end, they're going to sign on the signed deadline because they either don't want to go to college or they don't want to be, especially if you're a college junior, they don't want to go back for your senior year. So anyway, with Matzik, here's a guy who everybody thought, okay, unprecedented money means he wants more than the $7 million that Rick Purcello and Josh Beckett got out of college. And the Rockies you know, aren't a big revenue team, but they were smart about this. They had two extra picks coming up, 32 and 34, so if they don't sign MadSick, it doesn't blow their draft. And instead of negotiating all summer, or even really, I, I don't think the negotiations on Matzik really lasted more than a day or two. They just took it all the way to the end because they knew it was going to come to the end because you can't sign a guy for well over slide before the deadline anyway. And they offered him, th- you know, they got him done for $3.9 million. And, and I I would have definitely taken the over on that. I, I really would have thought Matzik would have gotten at least $5 million. So the Rockies got a great value. And, and they took the best guy on the board, which enough teams don't do, they got a tremendous value by doing so, and they didn't pay nearly as much as people thought we'd take to sign him. And then after that, they came back with the last pick in the first round. They got Tim Wheeler, who we had ranked as a mid-first-round pick and I think is underrated. I think he's uh, a you know, guy who proved himself in the Cape League, came out had a great junior year.
1: Has some athletic I ability.
0: You, I don't think there's a huge difference between him and, say, A.J. Pollock, who went 17th to the Diamondbacks. Correct. Um, A.J. might be a slightly better athlete and a slightly better chance to stay in center field. But I think Wheeler's underrated in pretty much every aspect of the game. I thought that was a great pick at 32. And then two picks after that with the compensation pick at 34, they got Rex Brothers, who's one of the the best lefties in the draft. College lefty, they're going to pitch him out of the bullpen. He's going to move really quick. And Rex Brothers was a guy we thought had a chance to go as high as 15th in the draft. We had him ranked as a mid-first-round pick. And you had kind of a tumbling domino effect where four of the first eight picks were taken because of signability over ability. What that did is that dropped Alex White of North Carolina out of the upper part of the first round and dropped him to the Indians at 15. When he went to the Indians at 15, that's where guys like Eric Arnett and Rex Brothers were supposed to go. And then they kind of got, instead of going in front of this big group of athletic outfielders, they went behind them. So I, I really thought the Rockies got three of the top, say, 16 or 18 players in the draft uh, with, with picks 11, 32, and 34. And they, they said that they're also very excited about a guy named Nolan Arenado, high school uh, third baseman from California. Uh, they think he's an even better pure hitter than, than Tim Wheeler and, and some of those other guys. So it's, you know they had a very good draft, and they went on and got some college hitters after that, and Ben Paulson and Kent Mathis. But uh, I, I just liked everything about that draft. I and mean, you, you get great values at the top, and then you keep you know keep hitting on guys after that.
1: I think uh, notable here for the Rockies is that Matzik, You wouldn't expect them to step out on Matzik. They're not necessarily an overslot club, not too frequently anyway. And then, uh, but Mazzik in their early years of the of the Rockies, they drafted heavily for high school pitching in the first round. Jamie Wright in '93, Doug Million '94, Jake Westbrook '96, Mark Mangum '97, Matt Roedy '98. Uh, Those are you know four of their first seven or eight first round picks that they drafted were high school pitchers. They hadn't drafted a first a high school pitcher in the first round since 1998. There was a supplement uh, that they signed. In Matt 2000, Harington. I was about to say, in 2000, I, I threw in that they signed. In 2000, they had that experience with Matt Harrington, the worst draft holdout of them all, where it was bad for them and bad for worse for Matt Harrington. Um, and that obviously did not work out. And uh, I, I don't know if they were stung by that. Uh, that was Bill Schmidt's first draft as scouting director, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they have never drafted a high school pitcher in the first round since then. They had a supplemental pick in Chaz Rowe, but, and he hasn't necessarily worked out. But they stepped out of their box a little bit, and I think it really helped. And I think, I'm think i thinking of the Indians as another organization, Jim, that I think has a very strong philosophy of how they like to draft. And in my opinion, it's a little conservative. I respect those guys, but I think they usually they're, 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 they err on the side of the college bat and... Uh, it hasn't always worked out for them. You know, Trevor Crow's is an example. I know people were on Trevor Crow. I think you recall I was never on Trevor Crow. I uh, never understood why Trevor Crow was the big guy to take. People wanted him falling all over themselves to take him in 2005. Um, I was much more on the Ellsbury train back then. And Anyway, that's when I got right. There are lots I got wrong. Feel free to send those in to us at podcast.baseballamerica.com. But, uh, you know, last year, in 2008, I felt like the Indians stepped out of their box a little bit with a guy in Lonnie Chisenhall, And I think Lonnie Chisenhall in my opinion, he's their best prospect, including Santana. I would take Lonnie Chisenhall over Carlos Santana right now. I, I like the bat, the infielder, the athletic ability. I like everything about Lonnie Chisenhall. So, and I was wrong on him in the 2008 draft. Maybe I'm overreacting now, but I like it when teams step out of their box a little bit. I mean, that's what the Rockies did here, and I think it will really benefit them. Uh, some of our other – go ahead, I'm sorry.
0: I was just going to say, I, I do think the one mistake teams can make is to paint themselves into a corner. Right. Whether you're saying we prefer college players over high school players or high school players over college players. There's only – in any given draft, in general, there's going to be 20 to 30, you know, really good players, you know, who are long you know, longtime big leaguers to superstars. And then there's going to be about another 20 to 30 useful players, you know, who, have, who who provide you some value. And, and if you shut off, you know, any aspect of the draft, whether it's high school or college, you're shutting off some of those players. I are going to be out there. And, and, you know, getting back to the Rockies, they made no secret when they started off, and I think they did paint themselves in the corner this way. When they started, they figured, it's kind of funny when you think about it with Mike Hampton and Denny Nagel. Yeah. But when the Rockies started, their philosophy was, Nobody's ever going to want to come pitch here. We're not going to be able to attract free agents, not realizing that people will go anywhere if you, you pay them top dollar. Right. But their philosophy was we're going to draft pitching, pitching, and pitching, because you know hitters will be you know dying to come here, but we won't be able to attract free agent pitchers. And when Bill Schmidt came in, was kind of when they had a new new regime taking over and kind of got away from that philosophy. And then on the flip side, the Rockies, uh, you know, have been for years very college-oriented this decade. They kind of flipped in the other direction. And I I, I think the teams that draft the best are the teams that are willing to take, you know, whoever they think the best players out there. And, you know, know, I don't think they're going to advance to the World Series now, but, you know, a a lot of these players on the Dodgers right now were drafted by the Dodgers this decade after Logan White took over. And it's funny because there's this perception that Logan (coughs) is a big high school, you know, guy, that he wants all high school players. And if you talk to Logan... That's not the case. He wants the best player on the board. And back at the beginning of the decade when everybody was getting very college-heavy and Muddy Ball was all the rage... Teams were, you know, drafting college players like never before. So the common sense would tell you that, you know, if you have your draft board set up and people are taking all the college players, that a lot of times the best players left when your pick comes up are going to be high school players. And if you go look at the Dodgers the last couple of years, you know, and Logan's now an assistant GM in charge of scouting. He's not the scouting director, but he's still heavily involved. Um, you know, he's a little less heavily involved than it was before. They've drafted a lot of college players. So right. I, I think uh-huh. what you got to do, you know, I've said this many times, you talent's talent. You, you you can't sit there and say oh, we want college players, or oh, we want high school players, or, oh, you know, we're going to take a college pitcher, you know, because we need a guy we will get there quick. You have to take the best guy on the board. And I think, you know, that's a roundabout way to get back to that. that's what the Rockies did this year. They took the best guys on the board.
1: I think they did as well. It's the Baseball America podcast. I'm John Manuel along with Jim Callis. Uh, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. That's uh, twitter.com backslash baseballamerica. Uh, you can also send us uh, email questions at podcast at baseballamerica.com don't have any new ones in the podcast inbox right now, but you can feel free to send those along. Uh, Jim, let's talk about a couple other categories that come up in the draft report cards that are always interesting. I was fascinated by the fact that this year I I was really underwhelmed by the best power hitter category. The 2008 draft was such a good draft for hitters, and it was very easy to come up with five power hitters. I'm frankly underwhelmed by the best power hitters in this year's draft. I think it's especially telling that best power hitter, the only two college guys that made our top five were both available in the 2008 draft. <laughs> and Chris Dominguez was a fifth-round pick who didn't sign, but the Rockies really didn't make a huge run at him after an initial, uh, the, those negotiations got to a bad start and just didn't go anywhere. And then Kit Mathis was not even drafted as a, as a college junior, and that's kind of shocking. That guy actually, I, I'm pretty positive, uh, I was just looking at some old of uh, the perfect game World With bad showcases this weekend, and we've got a couple guys going down there, and they were doing some perfect game Bat Showcase uh, research. And I'm pretty sure Kent Mathis played on the Team Baseball America team back in 2004. Uh, so he was a guy in high school and was an athlete and all those kind of good things, and he wasn't even drafted in, a, in 2008. But him and Chris Dominguez, the only college guys are made the best power hitter category, and I was really underwhelmed by that, that category in general. Just going through the draft report cards kind of reiterated to me how weak of a draft this was for hitting. There were very few clubs in the American League that really focused on hitters in this draft. And the ones that did, you know, they were able to kind of target some guys and get their guys because most of the other clubs seemed like they con- concluded this is not a great draft for hitters. We got some hitters last year. Let's load up on pitchers in this draft. Did you find that? Talking to scouting directors as well? I did.
0: I mean, I, I think that we were spoiled. 2008 was probably one of the top two hitter drafts of the decade, along with 2005. I mean, with guys like, you know, Alvarez and Smoke and Brett Wallace and Yonder, know, Alonzo, You just had a lot of gifted hitters, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, yeah, Bortre, you know, You know, even the guys. You know, it's not like Bortring came out and, and Bobby Bortring, who we ranked as top power hitter, came out and tore up pro ball. Right. Uh, you know, in the Pioneer League, and you know, Chris Dominguez. I mean, Chris Dominguez's raw power is off the charts. There's still, I, I just feel like I've talked about that guy for about a eight thousand years. years in <laughs> cod league, in the last two years of of doing, uh, you know, our Kentucky draft coverage. You know, last year he was a sophomore eligible draft pick. Rocky, you know, according to Rockies, they said, well, you signed for X. He said he would. And then they drafted him and he wouldn't. And, and that was that. But, I mean, the problem with Chris is, I mean, as, as huge as his raw power is, he still swings and misses a lot. So nobody is convinced, you know, 100% he's going to, you know, definitely make enough contact. And Mathis, I think, was just a guy who – was acclaimed in high school. He was an Aflac, you know, All-American game performer and just didn't perform like people hoped at Alabama for three years and then the lights switched on. I mean, I, he kind of intrigues me. I'm, I'm actually surprised he lasted to the fourth round, to be honest with you, John, just from the standpoint of it's not like this guy was a, a nobody. I mean, he was a guy in high school. He had a, you know, a tremendous year in college. You know, he led NCAA in home runs. Uh, he's a senior, so you're, he's not going to cost you a ton. You're going to get you know a little discount, and you know you're talking about a, a proven college hitter and a draft short on proven college hitters, who's not going to give you any trouble about signing because he's a senior, and yet he lasted till the fourth round. That 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 one surprises me a little bit in retrospect that he lasted that
1: long. I was shocked he lasted that long. I was really really shocked he lasted that long. I just didn't I didn't understand it. I'm a I'm a Tim Mathis guy. He's athletic too. He's not a stiff. The guy can run. He can throw. I think that was, another, I was, uh, that was another reason why I I, when I was looking at the Rockies draft. The value of their first three picks, but I loved the fact they got Kent Mathis. I also really liked the fact that they got uh, uh, Joe Sa- Sanders uh, out of Auburn where they got him. Uh, I liked their sixth-round pick, Chris Balcom-Miller, the JUCO pitcher they got out of California who had a tremendous debut in the uh, Pioneer League. Uh, I like Wes Music where they got him in the ninth round, a guy who had... In my mind, it sounds like first five-round stuff, but he has some medical issues. Uh, I liked Avery Barnes in the 11th round. I liked Charlie Ruiz in the 10th. I didn't have a chance to have six, seven big leaguers out of that draft. Uh, a lot of things are like in the Rockies draft there. So uh, another category, I guess the one thing that did stand out to me, Jim, was we had a hard, much harder time limiting ourselves to five in best fastball. Um, you know, Obviously, Steven Strasburg, uh, you know, he won best fastball. He won best secondary pitch. Uh, best athlete, we didn't have a whole lot of trouble there. Um, the one of the more interesting categories that we have to do is best late-round pick, and it's only in the last few years we've had to divvy that up. Best late-round pick above slot bonus, best late-round pick at or below slot bonus. Um, let's talk about that category a little bit. Uh, those top five above slot bonuses, those are some unique guys to me. Uh, and it is kind of the usual suspects, Orioles... You know, they've, they're they the surprise that they had two of the top five, Red Sox and Yankees, check in. I'm a little bit interested in talking about the Padres, because the Padres, I thought, had a good draft. After years of really, in my mind, the Padres drafting low ceiling, and we haven't always been fans of the Grady Fuson, Chief Gaten approach. You know, the college guys, the pitchers who hit the mitt, you know, control pitchers like Wade LaBlanc over uh, pitchers with stuff. Here's a guy in George, George Reyes, Jorge Reyes, at Oregon State, who kind of fits the bill more of a raw power arm, even if he is a college guy. I uh, mean, using Reyes as a jumping off point. Talk about the Padres draft, which we ranked fourth. Uh, what do you think of San Diego's draft, and maybe Reyes in particular, who you covered, obviously, this year in the Cape?
0: I, I really like their draft, too. We rated them the, the fourth-best draft overall, and, and this gets back to what we were touching on earlier. You know, I think... You know, we talk about p- people, you know, painting themselves into a corner. I think the Padres, over recent years, probably had the smallest corner they painted themselves into. You know, they wanted a very, you know, narrow demographic, and it led to a bunch of lower-ceiling players, which is what their system, you know, is filled with, you know, for the most part right now. And this year, they went in a total different direction. Uh, you know, they took they – you know, it, it's funny. I mean, the thing is, that they were so college-oriented that I remember when they took Matt Bush – number one overall in 2004, which, you know, was a, a, a series of poor decisions that led them to Matt Bush. I, I remember Chief Gaten in the press conference, like, saying, we shocked the world today and took a high school player. And he was serious, like, that was a big thing. Um, and this year they, they they went very high school heavy. I mean, the first round they took the best athlete in the draft, one of the best draft athletes in recent memory, in Donovan Tate. Um and, but, you know, he's a guy who, I mean, he's raw. I mean, he's not refined. Some guys wonder about the bat a little bit. Uh, even the potters say, you know, his swing was probably better as a sophomore than it was as a senior. You know, in the second round, they came back with another high school athletic outfielder in Everett Williams. In the fourth round, they took a, a, a tremendous high school arm that's raw in Kevius Sampson, uh, and they got all those guys done. You know, Donovan Tate cost them, you know, 6 you know, $6.25 million, which is the high school record. But with, with Everett Williams, Keevee Sampson, between them, they got those guys for about $1.375 million, I think. My numbers are right off the top of my head. And, and that was a little bit less than what people thought. And then get back to Jorge Reyes, I, I think he's a chance to be one of, the, one of the tremendous picks in the draft. Here's a guy who, as you all know, John, I mean, was College World Series MVP as a freshman. Terrible as a sophomore Inconsistent as a junior Nobody really knew what to make of him Uh, Potter's taken the 17th round He's a Scott Boris client He goes up to the Cade which, you know, admittedly was not the strongest the cape Has ever been the summer. He looked great. He was 91-94 with a really good slider, much more consistent over the short number of starts he made up there. And then, then at the end of the day, they signed him for $200,000 at the deadline, which is, you know, $50,000 over slot for a pick after the fifth round. But, I mean, to get Jorge Reyes for $200,000 based on what he showed on the Cape, I mean, I remember talking to a scouting director up there who had who his area guys told him don't even, you know, don't worry about Reyes. You know, don't go see him in the spring, because he wasn't good enough. Right. And the scouting director told his area scouts, cross-checker, I better see, you I mean, granted, it wasn't, the, you know, necessarily the same or he is going out there every you know, every weekend in the spring. But the scouting director told his guys, he's like, I need to see guys like this in the spring. I don't need to be told not to see guys like this. Yeah, that's so right. I, I think he could be a real steal, and, and he is an above-slot bonus. We list him, you know, fifth on that list. But, I mean, for $200,000, it wasn't like they, they gave – you know, nine hundred ninety thousand to Cameron Coffee, like the Orioles did to a high school kid coming off coming off a of Tommy John surgery. The Red Sox giving seven hundred fifty thousand to Brandon Jacobs, who's, who was more of a football player in high school. He was above slot, but it was a very reasonable sign. That's that's what
1: I like best about it. He's a college guy with some track record, and uh, the risk is lower. So I I like their draft. I thought Kiva Sampson in the fourth round, tremendous value there. A high school pitcher with arm strength. I mean, when really. When is the last time the Padres drafted one of those? I just I yeah, can't I can't think of one.
0: They got James Needy, who is a 6 pounds projectable high school kid. I mean, they don't usually draft guys like that. They usually draft the, you know, uh, you, know more, you know, Like their third-round pick was Jerry Solv, and even he, I think, breaks them all a little bit. I mean, he's he's got. Plus stuff, And he had he put up some nice numbers in college, but it was in the Summit League. I mean, so it's not like those numbers mean a ton. I mean, Oral Roberts dominates that league every year. Uh, but, you know, they went out, and they, this year it seemed like they went out and got, you know, athletes and, and projectable guys, uh, which I, I think in a way doesn't necessarily bode. You know, there's a lot of rumors that there's going to be a lot of changes in that front office once a new GM is brought in. And the fact that the scouting department drafted with a totally different philosophy this year, Makes you think that they realize they need to do something differently. So I, I think we may see some changes there. Well, once the Potter's name a new GM.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I, I just think it's—I think their last draft might be the best one of that group. It's—it's uh, it's really kind of he interesting. how that happened. I mean, that <laughs> happened with David
0: Lakey in Houston with the Astros, right. and it happened—you know—when Greg Smith got fired in Detroit or reassigned to Detroit, now with Pittsburgh. His last first-round pick was Justin Verlander, who's—you know—and they got Joel Zimmerman in the eleventh round of that draft.
1: <laughs> it really is. Amazing how that happens over and over again. Uh, I think the owners are reading uh, Baseball American. If they were reading, they say, "Hey, we, we think they had a great draft this time." Like you know, last year we ranked the Padres' farm system 29th. I think we were probably light on their farm system. They had a really good year as a farm system. I think we were underwhelmed by their lack of athleticism. We were underwhelmed by Alan Dykstra in the first round last year. There wasn't a lot of positive buzz when we ranked them last year. But you know what? Their college guys went out and performed this year. I don't think I, I you know I don't think they have a top 10 farm system, maybe not even a top 15. We probably should have had them in that 15 to 25 range, more than 29. But, uh, you know, it's a better farm system than we accounted for. But now you, you see Jeff Morad. I think he really just wanted his own guy. But one of the things he pointed to was player development. And I actually do think that over the long haul, the Padres haven't done a great job in player development. And mostly I think that Kevin Towers made a lot of chicken salad out of something else. But, uh, you know, I just think it's funny. Like you said, I think they were just getting the hang of, uh, they were fine-tuning their approach and getting better with their approach, and now they're probably not, they may not keep their jobs with a new owner or new general manager. I just, I really think that's I kind of know, ironic. They, I'd
0: say rather fine-tuned. I, I, would, I, would, I would go beyond that and say change drastically. But-
1: well, no, I think last year's draft was their usual approach. They right. just drafted better players. I think Jeff Decker's a better version of the kind of player they usually draft. I know but he's, he's kind of the same type of guy. But, I mean, he's but James Darnell's a he's good athlete for a college player, 100% bad. He's like a, a very good hitter, but he's a better version of that. He's kind of a better
0: guy, but I was gonna say, too, I mean, it's I think the thing is, too, we're talking about guys, you know, a lot of times when guys, you know, wind up getting reassigned as scouting director, they wind up, uh, you know, we, we look back and say that was their best draft. I think it just goes to show you how hard it is to judge these drafts because speaking of Kevin Towers, I'm not sure. If I ever bought this, bought this completely, but when he was hired as GM, you later, Lakino was with the Potters and hired Kevin Towers as GM. Lakino always likes to have you know, a new guy, he, he kind of cultivates and mentors like he did with Theo Epstein in, in Boston. And he said at the press conference that they looked at a bunch of candidates and couldn't find the right fit. And there's a direct quote from Larry Lachino. They read Baseball America, and we just rated the Padres as having the best draft in baseball. And he thought, well, maybe Kevin Towers should get a look, at, you know, get a look for this job. And we did rank the Padres as having the best draft in 1995. Oof. If you go back and you look at that draft, <laughs> I'm looking at it right now, the best player they got was the second pick in the draft, Ben Davis, who wasn't very good at all. And the only other big leaguers that got out of the draft were guys like Gabe Alvarez, Brandon Cole, and Kevin Walker. I mean, it's just a really nondescript draft in retrospect when you look at it. But uh, at the time, we thought it was the best draft. And if Larry Luchino was telling the truth, we helped Kevin Towers get the GM job in the first place.
1: You're welcome, Kevin. <laughs> That's funny. Because no, that he draft... He did,
0: like a, I guess, what, like a 13-year run, if I'm doing my math correctly. So. Yeah, he
1: did. But that, that is funny, because I just remember how much... I started here in September '96. I remember how many times I had to pull photos of Ben Davis. Boy, we loved some Ben Davis back well, in the day. He was number two pick in the draft. I mean, yeah, they passed on Kerry Wood. We kept writing about how they passed on Kerry Wood to take Ben Davis. Yeah, although again, you had some people who thought Kerry Wood was—you know—that was the great thing I remember about Kerry Wood being drafted that year. Is he pitched. I don't know if it was both ends of a doubleheader or yeah, games
0: was. on back-to-back days in high school, but his high school coach had him throw about 250 pitches in a. 24, 36-hour period, and Al Goldus about had a heart attack. But, yeah, you know, it's funny, all uh, sidetracks for a looking back at this draft, you know, your first pick was Darren Erstad, who, you know, was... You know, had a solid career, but he you know, wasn't a superstar. Ben Davis was Fizzle's second pick. Jose Cruz had a decent career, but wasn't what he was supposed to be as a third pick. I mean, right. can Ken argue with Kerry Wood. But do you remember who the fifth pick was in that draft?
1: I'm, I'm looking right at it. I, I did remember that it was Ariel Prieto.
0: Yeah, who was like this big, <laughs> big sensation. He was terrible. Your sixth pick was the best hitter, high school hitter in the draft. <laughs> Jamie Jones of the Marlins. Never played in the big leagues. And, uh, and the, the one thing I guess I probably remember most of all about this draft is Back then, I was our college baseball writer. I was in Omaha. We used to do this, uh, this big press conference with our player of the year, and we'd bring the All-Americans who were in Omaha to this press conference out in Omaha, and we would pipe in the first round of the draft via MLB's conference call. They'd allow us to pump that in. If the draft wasn't anywhere near what it was today being on TV. So Todd Helton, who was our player of the year, was there, when, and he, that's how he found out when the Rockies called out his name, and I will never forget Todd Helton's just smile. He smiled like the whole day. He was so happy the Rockies. You know that's your dream as a hitter, obviously, get drafted by the Rockies. <laughs> How thrilled he was that the Rockies had taken him. And uh, and and that's probably my biggest memory of that day was Todd Helton just being elated that the Rockies had taken him. Even though he was at the eighth pick, you know, he, you know, well, he didn't go. You know, there's some guys taken ahead of him. He probably couldn't have been happier if he was number one because he was going to go hit in course Field.
1: Todd Helton or Roy Halliday, best career of the of that year's draft. Who would you take?
0: I think if you put him in neutral parks, you might I might take Roy Halliday. But I, I do think Todd Helton might wind up being a Hall of Famer when all is said and done. Halliday, you know, probably has more work to do than Todd Helton to, to finish that path to the Cooperstown, boy, I mean, you know, looking at this, we could probably talk for hours about this draft. I mean, this, talk about some, uh, another industry. You have Ryan Jaroncic, the Mets took with the pick right behind State,
1: Oh, I miss who, that. Who
0: retired a year later, <laughs> took his bonus money went to
1: college. He went, did he go to you college. Know, he went to California Junior College to play football. I mean, yes, that guy was never serious about playing baseball. That's yeah, so that's a that that good story.
0: a disaster. You have Alvi Shepard, who was Dare nurse teammate in Nebraska, <laughs> who had an ERA of about six. He was, you know... And, and had predictable results. You had with back to back picks Chad Hutchinson, the Braves took, didn't sign him, he went to Stanford and wound up having a star cross career, two sports. And right behind him, the Yankees took the University of Texas as quarterback and Shea Moran. So it's, uh, it was uh, some crazy guys all over the place. On that,
1: that was, but you know, and then you go to the second round and you have a couple of useful pitchers. Uh, Brett Tomka in that uh, round, Jared Washburn, a couple guys who had very long big league careers. And I would say those are productive draft picks. And Tomko was the first pick for the Reds that year. Uh, he had Mark Belhorn that next year. And then one of the best players in this draft, you could argue him as the best player in this draft, I'm sure that his agent would, Carlos Beltran. I mean, Carlos Beltran was a second-round pick of the Royals that year. Uh, you could argue him from the position scarcity, being a center fielder. I, I would take Helton's career over Carlos Beltran's career, but that's arguable for sure. Uh, yeah,
0: I'd, I'd probably take Beltran because of the position scarcity. And I, but, uh, but you're right, you know, and again, I mean, Beltron. the interesting thing about that one is he's far and away the best pick, and I guess Javier Vasquez might be the second best pick out of Puerto Rico yeah. since Puerto Rico went into the draft.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Far and away the best uh, Puerto Rican draft pick. It's the Baseball America podcast with John and Jim. Jean and Jim. We he should probably. We probably should uh, wrap up real quick. But a couple odds and ends that came up, Jim, I wanted to mention. Uh, most intriguing background is always a real fun one. But we like to uh, we have different ideas of what's intriguing. Well, we uh, different things intrigue the two of us, which is funny. Um, but uh, I think we had a slam dunk most intriguing background non-baseball category this year with Wande Olabasi, the Padres outfielder. Why don't you explain a little bit about Wande Olabasi?
0: Standpoint, just from a a tool standpoint, I mean, he's got plus plus speed, he's got huge raw power, he's extremely raw to the point where he barely played three years at Stanford. But from the intriguing background standpoint, he's a a, he was born to a royal family in Nigeria. I I believe he's a Nigerian prince. I believe that's uh, later moved to Saudi Arabia, uh, which he represented in the 2000 Little League World Series, and also is a biomechanical engineering major. At uh, at Stanford, and all the years of doing most intriguing backgrounds, I don't think we've ever had that combination before.
1: No, that's uh, that's a pretty good combination. I, on the other end of the scale, I like the fact that the Phillies' top pick, Kelly Dugan, <laughs> that his dad's an actor director who works with, <laughs> whose last two big credits are that he directed uh, Adam Sandler in. Uh, you don't mess with the Zohan and Chuck and Larry. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. So slightly less regal background for Kelly <laughs> Dugan, but I think people are more familiar with Kelly He's Dugan's dad, maybe than they are with the uh, Prince of Nigeria. And then a lot of a lot of interesting baseball relatives: Mike Isramsky, Jake Porcello. I think is interesting. Uh, Harold Baines Jr. and a couple other I think that are uh, n- notable, but. Uh, uh, well, I, I want to throw
0: two more of my favorites. Though, okay? Go ahead. I, you, I think you like the baseball relatives more than I do, and I like the non-baseball relatives more. But uh, you got Virgil Hill, who's a 6 round pick of the, of the Cardinals. He's a guy who can really run. His mother, uh, Danine Howard Hill, won a silver medal in the '88 Olympics in the relays. I
1: love, I love Virgil Hill. I love the Virgil Hill background. I argued for it last year. I think you like your background guys more than you like mine. That's the that's, that's the point. Really true.
0: And his father, <laughs> Virgil Senior. Uh, won a, a silver medal in the Olympics in boxing and later held some light heavyweight and cruiserweight championships. And then my my other background I really liked was West Luquette, an unsigned catcher. That's a good uh, one. I like that at LSU. one. He's the, the grandson of the Tabasco tycoon Paul McElhaney. And he's also <laughs> uh, a star quarterback at the Isidore Newman School. Which is where Peyton and Eli Manning uh, were star quarterbacks.
1: So. See that one doesn't give me as much the like what high school I they went I like to, Tabasco. but the Tabasco fortune is, is awesome. I love the Tabasco, Tabasco fortune. Slash Manning, so. uh, I will high also stuff. I'll throw in that Trace Thompson is the son of Michael Thompson, who of course was a, a six man on a couple of Lakers uh, world uh, world championship teams in the NBA, and I think he's got a brother and a sister playing college basketball. I think it tells you. This kid is not just an athlete who plays baseball, he's an athlete who loves baseball. He had an NBA dad and two siblings playing college basketball. He probably was encouraged, had every opportunity to play basketball, but this guy wants to play baseball. He's one of the reasons I thought the White Sox had a potentially really, really good draft. Jared Mitchell, Trace Thompson, a couple of premium athletes. Uh, that said, I think the White Sox aren't going to top last year's draft with Gordon Beckham at the number 8 slot. For a long time, going to be hard for them to top that one. So, great podcast. Andrew
0: Thompson was a nice get for them too, John, because he was a guy who's supposed to be somewhat difficult to sign. He was going to UCLA, which a lot of times keeps its players right. And and the and the White Sox, not that they went crazy, but the White Sox almost uh, never go over slot. And they went over slot to, to sign him. Their slot was around five hundred ninety-six thousand. And the White Sox, for them, made the big step of going twenty-nine thousand dollars over slot <laughs> to sign him as a as a mid-second round pick.
1: I, I, if they had signed, I don't know B- why the
0: twenty-nine thousand made a difference, but apparently it did.
1: If they'd signed Brian Morgado, I, I would have been uh, real. I would have pushed for their draft to be in the top five. Uh, I didn't necessarily think they got uh, a real uh, a pitcher that I really truly. Get on board with to put them in the top five. Doesn't mean that they won't, but because Kyle Bellamy will probably move quickly to the big leagues. Uh, I do like David Holmberg, Uh, how that was a good draft for them. Uh, Ryan uh, Buke has a chance, or Buck, whatever, however you pronounce his last name. He's got a shot too. Was he really? He was my eighth-round pick, I think, yes. Oh, they, you took him in the same round as Doug Lowman, so... Uh...
0: Or maybe seventh round, because I think I picked behind the White Sox. Oh, then you probably <laughs> took him in the seventh <laughs> round. you're right with Morg- Morgato. I mean, there's another guy in the Cape who is kind of like Jorge Reyes. Right. Uh, had a very inconsistent uh, spring as a draft-eligible sophomore in Tennessee. I mean, he's got... He's over it, but he has Tommy John his background. He hasn't had as much success as Reyes. But as a, as a power arm lefty, he went in the third round and was really, really good on the Cape. And the White Sox, uh, at that point, uh, you know, you know, they, you know, we forget, you know, over the summer, before the deadline, they traded for J.P.V. Right. And they picked up Alexis Rios' contract, so there went all their extra money. And they would not, I think Morgado would have signed for, he wasn't going to sign for slot, but I think they could have signed Morgado for $500,000. I don't uh, think they could have gotten. And they weren't willing to go over slot to get him, and they, that may be one they regret next year. I, I mean, so Morgato pitches like he did on the kidney. He's going to be a first-round
1: pick. They were willing to go over slide, just not, I think, as far as Morgada, But then they the, the wanted them to go. But I the, I think you hit on the big reason. When, when you're an organization, in my mind, that's drained some of your – I mean, they, they traded Dexter Carter. They traded Aaron Parada. They traded Clayton Richardson. They traded some of their top pitching prospects. Not that Dexter Carter's any great shakes, but he was having a good year in low A. Uh, you know, outside of Daniel Hudson, I can't think of – and who made the big leagues. I can't think of an impact arm in their system – I thought, especially after trading Parada and Clayton Richard, they needed an impact left-handed pitcher, and they didn't really get a power lefty arm in this draft class. And I thought Morgato fit their needs, would have been a guy I would have stepped out on. But, you know, I don't know what those negotiations were like. I know something about it, but I wasn't there. I don't know what their budget is, so hard to criticize just they'd gotten Morgato, they would have been in my top five for sure. So,
0: yeah, I think if they'd gotten him too, I mean, if they'd wanted to. I mean, this is a team that their bullpen was kind of really, really shaky this year. They could have pushed if him. If you wanted to move him as a reliever, he could have gotten to the big leagues very quick. I mean, you and know, I may disagree on this. I'm not convinced that Brian Morgato is not going to be better than Aaron Parada. I'm not saying he will because I don't think he needs to show more consistency. He's similar. has got a more well-rounded repertoire. And I think he's a chance to be a better pitcher than Aaron Pareto, who was their first-round pick a couple of years ago, who they included in the Jake Peavy trade.
1: I'll, I'll disagree because of the the usual disagreement that you and I have. I value fastball command much more than you do. Morgado's never shown command or feel feel uh, for a fastball. It doesn't mean that he can't throw it hard, but he does not have feel for the pitch. Pareto has can add and subtract off the fastball a little bit, and I think that mitigates a bit his inability to spin a breaking ball or his secondary stuff, but that's a philosophical discussion for another podcast. I'm just saying they're comparable. They're, they're very comparable. Just, I agree. It'll be interesting to see because if Morgado, and again, he hasn't done it on a consistent basis. If he does
0: put things together, especially, you know, we, we've talked uh, about, you know, I think not on a podcast, about how next year's draft class, especially on the college side, is very uninspiring. Absolutely. If Morgato pitches like he did on the Cape, he's going to go in the first 15 picks next year's draft. I,
1: I don't think there's any doubt that guys who were ones who got away in this draft report cards – like LeVon Washington, like Jake Eliopoulos, like Brian Morgado, those guys, and James Paxton, those guys are going to be significant factors in the 2010 draft. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, there's a lot of those guys who got away in this year's draft who will be factors again next year. So we're over the 40-minute mark. Going to have to wrap it up, Jim. But uh, we could do next time we'll talk about the 1996 draft on the next, on the next baseball network. you think, John, you're, um,
0: the ones who got away you just mentioned, I think that... The ones who got away usually have more of an impact three years down the line because it's the high school guys who are the better players usually because most of your college players do sign. But I, I think that this this year's group of the ones who got away will have more impact on the following year's draft than anyone I can remember. I think you're right, though. John Washington, like you just mentioned, I think he's a potential first-round pick. Iliopoulos is a potential first-round pick. And lefties, Paxton, James Paxton, Bram are two – for potential first-round picks Sam Dyson who went back to South Carolina yeah. he to Sam Dyson he's a potential first round pick. I, I forgot
1: about Sam Dyson right so I mean there,
0: there's five potential I mean the, thick green, the odds are that they all aren't going to go that high but there's five guys who could have been signed this year who are going to be in next year's draft who could be first round picks I will and
1: honestly backs, be that's highly unusual. I will honestly be shocked if all five of those guys are not first round picks because the college class next year is, is brutal I'm sorry it's it's brutal, and if those guys, I'll be stunned if all five of those guys aren't first round picks. I know not a lot can happen between now and June, but those guys are first rounders for me for next year. So, but if anyone listening to this podcast who's ever been on the phone with Jim, will understand how hard it is to get off the phone with Jim when you're engaged in the conversation, and it's the same thing with this podcast. We could definitely go on for a long time. It's a lot of fun, Jim. Thanks for uh, thanks for calling in from uh, Winnetka. We appreciate it. Uh, It was a quick 40 minutes, and uh, I'm I'm pleased that the, the golden retriever puppy in the background only barked early in the podcast. Me too. For Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America podcast. Until then, so long, everybody.